0: So should
1: we start? Let's do it.
0: Here we are once again with this great programming that is the Green Majority, the major, just unstoppable blob. We're going to do just a brief intro about uh, about uh, international climate news, and then we're going to have a discussion about climate pragmatism versus purism, that false dichotomy that uh, has been drawn by various commentators over the years. Continuing a discussion Stefan had last week with Alex Tavasoli. And moving into a discussion about finance, and Stefan's going to be interviewing Chloe C. from Banking on a Better Future. And they're talking about the strategies that that organization uses to force bankers and banking organizations and finance organizations to change their investment practices.
2: I mean, or at least confront them in hopes that they do change.
0: Well, we're talking about office occupation. We're talking boycotting. We're talking... But also just going,
2: but also going in and just talking to your representative inside the company. It's a It's a fully fledged strategy on all sides. Very interesting conversation.
0: Flubber is now caked on my throat, and therefore I'm just about to bellow into the cosmos rather grotesquely. This show will now be flubber, aesthetic, aesthetically flubber themed after we get our new um, designer in here. Flubber is a good idea, actually. Okay. Let's this, you should research flubber and give her some ideas.
2: Let's dive into the news.
0: So people around the world are drowning and baking in our global climate disaster as we speak. Great. Let's right. some news. I mean, we can like that news?
2: No, obviously. It's bad okay. news.
0: South American countries have not been able to grow as much food as usual in recent years. Uh, 2021 2.6% drop in crop yield over several several countries Uh, over the past 40 years the fire season in australia has grown by an entire month the mass extinction that is happening globally will threaten the livelihoods of billions of people it's been calculated and the companies most responsible for these catastrophes are reporting their biggest profits in at least 14 years as fuel prices have risen drastically West Virginia is now refusing to do business with any bank that has decided to cut down on coal investments. Export Development Canada, which is the bank our country uses to make money internationally, uh, has effectively announced that it will not be taking any major steps to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions in the coming years by announcing 2030 investment targets that will not cause any significant change. Um, An analysis from the group Shift Action for Pension Wealth on Climate Health and Climate Health recently found that 80 managers of Canada's 10 biggest pension funds are also working for fossil fuel companies. So they work for both. They choose the investments and they work in the companies that they might choose to invest in. And finally, an executive from Bank of America was recently outed by The Intercept as having stated in a memo that the bank is actively hoping for fewer jobs in America because high unemployment gives workers less bargaining power.
2: The last two things you mentioned there, I think, are the ones that, I would, that really tie into the rest of the conversation we're going to have on this show. You know, the first is this unbelievable connection between those in the financial sector and in the fossil fuel uh, sector We talked in previous episodes about how one in five uh, people who serve on banks, on, on our big five bank directors, also serve on the boards of fossil fuel companies. And so the fact that you know 80 managers of Canada's 10 biggest pension funds are also tied in does not surprise me, but does go to the conversation we have at the end of the show with Chloe C about how the oil sector and climate change and fossil fuels are deeply tied into our financial sector, especially here in Canada, and how much work there is to peel them apart. And then the last point about how the Bank of America has noted that they're trying to increase unemployment to basically crush workers to decrease inflation, we talked about in the middle section of the show about the ways in which our systems currently are not in any way designed for the best of all of us and those for those of us to live well. But to you, Lauren. The Bank of America executive
3: who who had stated in a memo that he's that the bank is actively hoping for fewer jobs because uh, high unemployment gives workers less bargaining power, and that is one hundred percent true. He's he's right. Fewer jobs do do give workers less bargaining power, and the more bargaining power workers have, the better for the general populace and 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 the worse for a corporation and a and an executive. And anyway, um, but what I think is kind of cool is that we're in a period of time where there is an abundance of work and. There is like relatively low unemployment and unemployment is I, from what I understand, continued to stay or projected to continue to stay relatively low, despite rising prices, because bottom line, we have a whole generation of workers, the baby boomers who as a result, partially as a result of the pandemic and partially as a result of just aging out of the workforce have left a pretty big gap in the workforce. So despite the wishes of this bank of America executive, like too bad, so sad buddy, workers are in a really good position right now because uh, there's a big gap in the workforce that um, companies and the government needs to fill. and, And that means that workers are in a really good position to leverage their power and collectively bargain for better conditions and better pay for themselves. So like things are grim from maybe an inflation standpoint and interest rates are really high and the ways in which the market is being currently manipulated in order to like benefit executives is really rough, but we are still in a uniquely exciting time in terms of like the amount of power that workers have the ability to seize right now. And I, and I hope we continue to see that wave because we have seen in recent months and in recent years, this kind of resurgence of labor organizing, obviously everybody knows about like, what the 200 plus Starbucks um, franchises that have been unionized in the States. And we're starting to see that trend pour over into Canada. And I think Maybe this is just because I'm a former service service industry worker myself, but like I'm really excited to see that, especially because so much of our like quote unquote economy in the global north is built on service industries and um and like less increasingly less so on manufacturing. It's 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 an untapped area, um and if we can effectively organize ourselves within the service industry, um I feel like it's like we know no bounds for for the amount of power that that workforce can can take over so too bad bank of america guy you suck
0: there's a there's an argument amongst powerful financial people that high that higher wages and in, causes inflation yeah. and so higher wages is a problem and so to solve that they increase interest rates and so there's less money available and that somehow brings down wages and somehow is good for the economy by people being paid less and is, and is that a solution that's being used?
3: I think we are definitely seeing people try to make that point. And that's the current market manipulation, manipulation that we're seeing play out right now. But what we have to understand when people try to make that point that like, oh, higher wages cause inflation, and then we have to manipulate the market with high interest rates. It's like, well, no, <laughs> higher wages don't cause inflation. Inflation happens because like executives are having increasingly higher wages and the ways in which we like value a given company and pay out shareholders is, is what causes inflation. Inflation happens seemingly is completely untethered to wage rising because we've seen inflation rise year over year over year over year and life getting more and more and more expensive and like median wage hardly raising at all.
2: My understanding is that there are some times in some ways in which that is a case to be made and an argument to be made that that's a part of this whole operation. However, when you look at the fact that, you know, the Loblaws and the oil companies are making billions and billions of dollars of profit, the first place you could imagine going to trimming is those, you know, a windfall tax, which we've seen in many places against these places that are, you know, basically, like Loblaws has been shown to be raising their prices more than the rate of inflation would require. The... The oil companies are increasingly making way more money than than they than they ever have, and yet not putting that money back into things like cleaning up their oil from wells. And so I think that anything can cause inflation. Any 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 in that like company profit corporate profits can in the same way that wages can because both those things are theoretically, ways that things had cost more, right? Like, you can imagine how that works. But we only ever seem to think that the answer is, oh, okay, well, the workers should be paid less rather than the, the, the company should make less money. And as Lauren mentioned, you know, the median income hasn't increased since the 70s or 80s, and yet here we are with things still, pr- pr- still costing dramatically more than they did in the 70s or 80s.
0: All right, and we're going to go to some music and come back and talk about climate pragmatism. And uh, then Stefan's going to interview Chloe C. about how to take on the banks. Welcome back to The Green Majority, your most reliable and comprehensive source of all things environment.
3: No, we are neither reliable nor comprehensive.
0: Your most robust account of every detail of the interface between human and non-human nature. (laughs) And Stefan is now going to introduce a quibble he has with the way some people. I don't even know how to preface this.
2: You just throw it at me; it's fine. I don't know
0: how to preface this.
2: That's all right. So, for those who listened to our recent interview with Alex y you'll know that that we we spent a bunch of time talking about you know this pragmatism versus. Purist response, and I will say the language that uh, we used there in the practical and in purist uh, came from an article from Heather Schofield in March of 2022, uh, who's an economist columnist, an economics columnist, and it was and Alex sent it to me as a way to sort of introduce this sort of idea. And for those of you who may not have heard the show, basically the idea or what's presented in this argue in, in this particular article is that the liberals as it stands today are taking a practical approach to climate change and the environmentalists want a purist approach to tackling climate change and in our discussion obviously we you know pushed back about that idea we made a few jokes about how anything could be practical but I, I did want to bring it actually to you of you to have a sort of a longer conversation because i think it's interesting that this type of dynamic continues. And I was talking to a, another activist today where I want to explain this dichotomy. he sort of expressed this sort of distress that there are still straight out denialists. so we have a hard time labeling the you know the Justin Trudeau's of the world as as climate change denialists because honestly we've had so little action that someone who is taking any action at all gets to hold this mantle of being practical. Even when their actions are going to pretty much still lead to the destruction of all things, especially if you sort of follow the thinking here of, you know, of Heather Schofield in this article where she quotes Ed Greenspoon. Is
0: uh, that Ed, the star?
2: Yeah, it's a star. Uh, and she quotes Ed Greenspawn, uh, who's from the Public Policy Forum, as saying, quote, there are two overarching visions of the energy transition are competing for the hearts and minds of Canada. Of Canadians, the purest approach and accelerated phase out—and that's in quotes—of oil and gas and replacing it with, qu- replacing it quickly with renewables and clean electricity, uh, risks quote disrupting the way we live. On the other hand, a quote-unquote practical approach of an aggressive decarbonization, which sounds exactly the same, and yet apparently that is the more practical approach mainly because it promotes renewables and clean energy while cutting emissions from oil and gas and yet the subtext is that an accelerated phase out means we actually get off cl- of oil and gas as quickly as possible and a aggressive decarbonization leaves room for i guess you know ccus
0: or you decarbonize the carbon
2: yeah exactly you can decarbonize the carbon and keep burning fossil fuels. And so what do you think about all of that? But also, you know, what in your mind is an actually practical approach to climate change at this point?
0: I thought that, like, when Stephen Harper was talking about uh, reducing the emissions intensity of, of oil sands products. Yeah. And so that's when you make it less, you you, you produce fewer emissions while actually taking the stuff out of the ground and, and, and refining the product or whatever. Yeah. But I read recently that... that uh, Reducing the carbon intensity of Canadian oil products uh, is—I don't know if entirely—but the, argu- the the articles seem to be saying that uh, what they're mainly doing is just refining it in other countries, mm. and so that removes the carbon intensity of the product because it's being exported because of the the emissions of refining it are being exported to another country, and so in my and just just taking that as an example, it, it would appear that. The mindset of someone who makes this distinction between pragmatism and purism and uses the wording that you just cited is one of what can we do as a country while using the full advantage that we have as, a, as, as the country of Canada, right? However we, can, however, we can flex Canadian muscle to do something and convince ourselves that we're doing something. And that, that's like the only thing we should do is worrying about Canada specifically and not about any other countries. So the pragmatic approach in that, in what happened just read, is what can Canada do without thinking about anybody else?
3: yes no you're that it is it is sold as pragmatic and in actuality in no way is it pragmatic because we don't live in a world where like our artificial borders are just that they're artificial there is there is no difference between oil that is refined in canada and oil that is refined at any given number of refineries overseas just because we don't have to tally the emissions intensity and include it as part of our carbon accounting doesn't mean that it doesn't exist doesn't mean that it just well it quite literally does disappear into the ether but like realistically no i was gonna try to do that annoying thing where it's like the oxford english dictionary defines pragmatic as blah 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 and like but like really what it says is it's like dealing with things in a way that's based on practical rather than theoretical considerations and like i think i think that's one of the problems is is that it's like a a, (laughs) a liberal um politician or somebody who considers themselves to be a moderate or a conservative who has the sort of trappings of a liberal politician um, would insist that the... (sighs) that the realities that we are trying to take into consideration are in fact theoretical, are in fact unproven. Um, and for that reason, should we take them into consideration and should we act on them, that would be dangerous and reckless behavior because you're potentially throwing money out the window that doesn't need to be spent. Um, when, in, when in reality, it's like, these are no longer theoretical considerations. It is getting hotter. It's freaking hot right now. And the way it was phrased to me the other day, actually really effectively by somebody on a work call was like the heat that we're experiencing right now is because of carbon dioxide that was put in the atmosphere 20 years ago, 30 years ago. We are putting way more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere right now than we were 30 years ago. So take that into consideration when you're projecting yourself ahead and thinking how hot it's going to be when I as a as a near 30-year-old will be nearly 60 getting, getting kind of up there in age, not to, I'm not that I'm saying six year olds are <laughs> old, but like getting up there in age and have like children, potentially even grandchildren of my own to deal with, like that is very hot. And to me, that is a practical and a pragmatic consideration to be making, but it's the thing. I almost feel like pragmatism is like, is, is along some sort of timeline. Um, and, and is therefore like, open to consideration in light of that because again we've talked about how like decisions that oil and gas executives for instance are making are on a timeline that is so incredibly reduced that almost anything can be considered pragmatic because they're not thinking 10 years down the road they're barely even thinking 5 years down the road all they're thinking of is shareholder is um is shareholder value for the next quarter. That's literally all they care about because that's all they have to care about because if next share their or because if next quarter their shares are are at a high value, that means they get their bonus. They get to keep having their job. So like yeah, when 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 you're working on such a reduced timeline and in no way are you projecting ahead and thinking ahead for the next 30 years and how hot it's going to be in the next 30 years, anything anything can be justified. Anything is considered pragmatic.
2: That distinction I think is super interesting and useful because maybe well, not maybe one of I think the fundamental disagreements that's being had through this conversation is about what is theoretical and what is practical. right? Like most of us who are arguing for a the fastest removal of carbon from you know from our electricity system and other systems as possible, See the scientific reality as practical, and the economic reality as at least in part created by us, right? Like, I'm not going to pretend that humans have full control of how the economy works. Uh, you know, there's many theories out there. Modern, modern, modern monetary theory, you know, comes out and basically says that we could print money for an uh, extended amount of time. But I think, at the very least, most of us would argue that the physical limits of ecosystems are more real than the physical than the than the limits of our economic systems and that if we tried to push our economic systems to the max in ways that maybe we haven't tried before in an effort to protect those physical systems that the fallout would still be less bad than the reverse which is what we're doing now which is basically trying to protect the theoretical existence of our quote unquote economy at the v- immense detriment of the practical physical systems that we're seeing and that's a disagreement that I think we have to parse through i like
3: had to drop macroeconomics twice before i like kept it long enough to pass it kind of thing like i'm I'm a bit of a dumb dumb when it comes to, to these things, but it's like, I feel like we're even seeing that now, like, like within, within the field of economic, well, not the field of economics in in the academic sense, but in like within the economic sphere of operation that like for fear of um, like rampant inflation the, um, the central bank in Canada has bumped up interest rates to a point where it's now making prices for everything untenable and unaffordable. And it's like, sorry, to prevent this theoretical runaway inflation, we're playing with like real life interest rates that affect you and me, as opposed to like, I don't know, playing with things that affect the billionaires that actually has a consequence on, on our economic system and actually has a consequence on, on inflation. Anyway, again, I'm a bit of like I'm Bozo the clown when it comes to economics but it's just like we're always prote- we're always protecting this theoretical macroeconomic system that seemingly serves like three people Galen Weston, Jeff Bezos, and like I don't know Kylie Jenner and her 3-minute jet flights.
0: And you ne- and you need very specialized expensive training to be even be allowed to use the word economy in a professional sense and the people and the people who get to use the word economy and define the limits of that are already extremely incentivized to to, to maintain a specific set of of material and, and uh, relations that will uh just sort of maintain their positions and what they already understand and like in and, in and, and, and on that same topic uh there was a study recently by uh, professor Aviel Verbruggen i don't know where he is exactly but he took, he took together uh, some various people from, from University College London School of Economics and Carbon Tracker and did an analysis to dis- discover that $52 trillion have been earned by uh, fossil fuel corporations since 1970. So petrostates and fossil fuel companies, that, which, which, which is 2.3 billion pounds or 2.8 billion U.S. dollars per day. In profit, not not net revenue, but profit, and on top of that, they're getting like sixteen billion dollars of subsidies a day, and so, and in, in terms of, and also adding in what you just mentioned about uh, inflation, right? You have uh, prices going up, but no desire to cut into corporate profits to to help that not from happening. So, the, so. Those using the term, th- those defining what economy means and what its what its limits are, uh, are per- are perfectly prepared to for, to allow a lot of people to to either die or become very you know to have their lives destroyed in order to maintain that profit margin.
2: Like in a conversation back early pandemic, I was talking to Tim Nash. You know, the sustainable economist, he calls him economist, but, you know, he comes at least an economics degree. And he and I were discussing the ways that the markets at the time had just received a huge influx of cash from the federal government, the states especially, to, like, keep them from absolutely tanking, and then spent the next, like, year and a half making billionaires just ridiculous amounts of money while everyone else suffered. And it was this moment where everyone in I knew and like the the lived economy of those of us who have to go out and do stuff were having hard times. Many people were out of work, you know, many people were struggling. Many people were trying to solve you know, just get through the day. And yet the quote unquote market was having the best six months ever. And and now it sort of has flipped on its head where People at least are out to work. I know more people who are working. Unemployment is is decreasing still. I think that's a little iffy now, but even the last job numbers I saw in the States, unemployment is decreasing. And the narrative is, oh, that's actually bad because now... Workers can ask for more for more money, so therefore they should they're they're causing inflation. So we should actually crush the workers, so that there's more unemployment, so that they'll come cheaper again. Despite the fact that that's not where the money seem, that despite the fact that we're seeing the Galen Weston's of the world make record profits, despite the fact that the last two years almost everyone with tech stocks has made billions of dollars, and the oil companies are making billions of dollars because of the war in Ukraine, and all of these things exist. And yet, the one way that our economic system seems set about trying to reduce "quote unquote" inflation is by crushing people into unemployment, so they have to take cheaper and cheaper jobs, because that's the decision of what is actually causing money or causing it to be more expensive, not the increased price of oil, you know, impartially supported by oil companies, not you know re- re- reaping in project, yeah, reaping in pro- uh, profits, or honestly, think, even things like. You know, when we think about the cost of housing and like how reticent we are to to start charging, say, empty unit taxes just to force people to actually rent out their tax. You know, their 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 empty units. Like that would alone that, that you want to decrease the cost of something. How about housing and start where you can do it just by doing that? But that affects obviously a very limited number of people, and the people have to be rich because they own empty apartments you know and we yet we can only get a 2% tax on that at least here in Toronto. And so all of this I feel like is uh just an example of the ways where our solutions get so hemmed in by again what we think is theoretical and what we think is practical and that those in power have decided that the that the economy, quote unquote, and the ways in which the market works is practical. and apparently our physical ecological systems are something that we can that we don't know what will happen. So let's find out and we're finding out and things are just lighting on fire. Mm-hmm. well, and and I mean the thing isn't
3: like and this is very much like this isn't a new point to make. this is old. but like and the reason that we are so able to be convinced, that the economic is the practical and the natural the environmental theoreticals because we've been completely and utterly alienated from any semblance of a natural process right like as as workers as people, as community members, like it's, we are, we are so far removed from the natural processes of the world that of that, that of course we come to think of them as, as, as strictly theoretical, but, um, I don't know. It's just sort of, it's bringing me back to the same point that I know we've, that that I know we've made before in, in, in other capacities on this show, but like, basically if somebody is coming to you with a point and saying, this is the practical reality, this is the pragmatic decision that we need to be making for quote unquote, the betterment of society, like, who is it practical for? Who is it pragmatic for? Who is benefit? out of this decision that is being made is it you is it your neighbor is it your friend or is it is it some theoretical man in a suit in a in an office on bay street like who's benefiting here practical for whom pragmatic for whom
0: i would uh i don't know if this is useful or not i would i would even further twist the idea of the idea of theory and suggest that like those those who manipulate the financial investment apparatus live in a, live in a world removed from the rest of us to the point where other human beings are theoretical. Like 100%. the the actual the actual the actual existence of of other subjectivities become a theoretical concern.
2: I'm here with Chloe C., a Atron organizer with Banking on a Better Future. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So we've had some folks from Banking on a Better Future on before, I believe it was last year. But for those listeners who may not have heard that interview, can you just give us a quick overview of what you do?
1: Absolutely. So Banking on a Better Future is a completely youth-led, youth-run nonprofit. And we're trying to pursue climate justice, but particularly focusing on the banks, the financial sector, and their role in the climate crisis. So what we do is we want to mobilize and engage and just inform youth about how they can be taking action to collectively be building power against these financial institutions, which are really just really funding the climate crisis and making it a lot worse funding things that are not solutions and are actually quite the opposite. We also do a lot of things to try to be in solidarity with indigenous land defenders who have really been at the forefront of the struggle for climate justice for so much longer than settlers have been here. So that's who we are. That's kind of what we do.
2: Amazing. And so you sort of touched on it, but maybe we can dive in a little bit more about what is it about banks and the banking sector that has led you to make them the target for this campaign in this work?
1: For me personally, I think, and maybe others can relate as well, I've seen so much activism and youth activism directed to policymakers, to government, which is all very important and still work that we should be pursuing. But I don't think enough people are aware of how much the banking sector is really such a huge player as well in the climate crisis. And we really want to make sure that there is still attention being drawn to that. And in particular, in terms of youth youth have so much power in the banking sector because we are the bank's future future highest or largest mm-hmm. share of a uh, clientele. So the banks really, really care about holding on to us because it's shown that once people kind of settle on a bank, they're less likely to move banks. So each of the big five Canadian banks, that's TD, BMO, CIBC, Scotiabank, and RBC, they're all trying to vie for the youth, the youth market and they want Students, they want high schoolers, they want university students to be opening accounts with them and not other competitors or credit unions. Therefore, we have such a huge amount of power to be shifting the banking sector to do things that we want, because, I mean, I think it's fair if we're going to be putting our money with them to, you know, trust them to safeguard it for our future, then we should be, we rightly are demanding that they take that money and use it in ways that actually do protect our future and not actively destroyed. The banks have invested so much money, an incomprehensible amount of money into the fossil fuel industry. I think it's over 900 billion Canadian dollars since 2016 when the Paris Climate Agreement was signed, which is, I think that's like 11 zeros. It's genuinely incomprehensible and I don't even understand it. And all that money could instead be going towards solutions or things to better our future instead. So that's why we want to call it the banks. We think that they actively are fueling the climate crisis, but they also have the power to stop that.
2: Yeah, I think that's such a an important angle. I feel like banks are like the most institution of institutions, like in terms of there's the government and then there's really the banking and financial sector sort of ends up becoming these two pillars of the way things end up happening and getting done. And so... It's such an interesting shift to try to like begin whittling away them, and especially that youth angle. I know I was in a conversation with a researcher friend of mine who had been hired to do some research about banks. And one of the things that he was saying was that they're not so concerned about people switching banks, partially because of what you said, people are already locked in. You know the moment you any sort of significant set of financial instruments becomes so hard to leave and move, that yeah, people get stuck. Like I, my, I inherited my bank from my mother. My brother inherited his bank from my father. They're different banks. Why? Because exclusively because we showed up like at different times to do different things, right? It's like n- zero man of thought did I put into choosing where I currently bank, and I'm now begun the process of trying to get myself into a credit union. And it's a lot of work. It's not easy. And so I really find it interesting that you're trying to get youth at that moment because it is a where they're making the decisions that will affect the rest of their life, and B, where the banks are most concerned about sort of losing that future income. How would you find youth responding to it? How are how are they feeling about this when you engage youth about this conversation?
1: Yeah, I think that youth are, rightfully so, very concerned about the climate crisis. And I find that a lot of youth have been feeling like a lot of their eyes have been open to the impact of the banking sector. I know personally for me, I also didn't even realize that the banks were like doing all this stuff and were such a big player in the climate crisis until I started getting into this work, which is kind of unfortunate. I wish I knew about it before, but like you, I also didn't put much thought into where I was putting my money into what my bank was doing. It's kind of one of those, like, put it in there. It's a number on a screen and like, I'm not going to think too much about it anymore. It's stressful. That's, that's all. And I think a lot of other people have that experience and have this feeling that you know, money and people's financial stability. It's a very stressful kind of thing. And no one wants to worry about it. No one wants to worry about what exactly their bank is doing, which is so fair. I hope that what Banking on a Better Future is doing is making folks realize that, A, it's actually not as hard to move your money as you might think, especially for youth who, you know, most of us don't have like mortgages yet and stuff like that that we have to worry about. So we really do have the power to pose a credible threat to the banks that we will be you know taking charge in our future that we do care about the climate crisis and what happens to our money and that we will be making financial and banking decisions that are in line with a livable future for all
2: awesome and so let's just hypothetically say that there's a person or a young person out there who's listening to the show, you know, we are broadcast across Canada on on community radio stations. So it's quite likely that some university students are here. That's most often one of the main demographics of folks who are listening to the program as it airs on the radio, at least. And so what do y'all suggest? What's the suggestion or route that they can take to begin their shift of starting up or moving away from the bank or entirely starting at a place where they aren't invested in banks from the very beginning?
1: Right. Well, the great thing is there's so many options. So what I was talking about earlier or referencing was this idea of bank switch. So switching to either a bank that's going to have the best policies on climate and free prior informed consent from indigenous peoples for fossil fuel projects. It's even better if you plan to do this to be meeting with your bank manager, the manager of the branch that's closest to you or any of the other staff that you can talk to it really multiplies your impact because now you're actually talking to a human being at that branch, you're making that personal connection, you're explaining your concerns about where your money is going and explaining why you're planning to take the action that you're taking. But the good thing is if you feel like you're not in a position to be doing that or making that move, you can also just still meet with them anyways and still talk to them about your concerns. And you know, it's still really good to be, again, forming those personal connections and making this a very human thing A lot of times things get a lot of, they get lost in the numbers and, you know, 900 billion, what does that even mean? But what you can't compete with is a personal story about how you feel about the climate crisis and why you think that your bank should not be contributing to the climate crisis. Some other things you can do is moving to a credit union. If you don't want to wait for a bank to have a good climate policy, credit unions are a great option. But you can also, again, for folks who aren't trying to make that big change right now, just Join in with collective action with your peers. I think that is a really, really key thing to make sure that we achieve climate justice, that we get our voices heard by the banks. It's really working together with all the people in your school, in your household, in your classroom, in your workplace, wherever you may find your community, and just, you know, making sure that they are aware of what the banking sector is doing as well and then starting to organize together and i think we have a lot of resources on thinking on a if you want to learn how to organize your community if you want resources on like things that you can do smaller digital actions or anywhere from like a bigger protest and yeah what we really want to do is make sure that these banks feel the pressure and know that youth are calling them out and are seeing what they do what they're doing and that we're not going to stand for it
2: amazing and so Maybe we can dive in a little bit to the organizing piece of this, because I'm always interested whenever chatting with the organizers and activists who are really directly addressing the system, how they see their actions connecting with the change they want to see in the world. And so you talked about going and talking to a bank teller, and you can totally see that one, right? Like you're directly engaging their employees, you're trying to get inside and outside pressure sort of happening at the same time. But yeah, how do you sort of see your actions interplaying with this larger shift that you're hoping to, to see?
1: I think the thing that makes me happiest at any action that i'm at is when we print out a bunch of leaflets just you know informing folks on what the banks are doing and outlining some key facts about their investments and their underwritings and people actually take them and read them and fold them up and keep them in their purses and their bags whatever it might be and it makes me even happier when i see people that clearly work in the financial district in downtown toronto Especially folks who might be like younger, like co-op students, when I see them taking those leaflets, hearing what we want to say, seeing our actions outside of the banks and being like, oh, what is this about? What are you doing? That's where I really see a really tangible difference that we're making, making people think. And even if the thought that they're thinking is these kids, like they should be in school, why are they doing this? At least they see us out there and they know there's like pressure underneath them. And that young people are not afraid to be out on the streets and to be loud and clear about what we want. I also think that our actions are just really great at forming community among youth and specifically a community that isn't afraid of sticking it to the banks, the power holders, whoever it might be, and really creating a new generation of youth who are angry but have a really strategic and directed way to channel that anger that's super productive and hopefully will get us towards climate justice.
2: Yes, more strategic anger. The world could (laughs) desperately need more strategic anger. I feel like right now we're bogged down in unstrategic despair so often that strategic anger is the perfect antidote. Um, And so during your work and through your work, I'm curious if there's anything that that has sort of jumped out out at you and surprised you or that you feel like the general public really needs to know.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that really blows my mind is when I see ads from the big five banks, and I've especially looked into the RBC ads, but when I see these ads and like beautiful forest landscapes or just amazing nature and the banks messaging over it being like, yeah, we are investing in. This then trees or whatever anything about the environment and then contrasting that to what they actually do and how they're actually contributing to the climate crisis it's always so ironic in the most angering way possible I think I've gotten so many people who just forward me emails about like did you see this thing that RBC is saying or like this eco tech initiative that they have or these grants that they're making and I'm like I didn't, and I can't believe that they're doing that because the messaging in there is so counter to what they're actually investing in, what they're actually putting their money into. And yeah, I feel like it's one of those situations where actions really do speak louder than words and their actions so, show so much, just lack of care about our futures and the environment, even when they're messaging. Particularly, they targeted advertising to me, a student who <laughs> they're trying to get the clientele of. It's so different from what they're actually doing. But yeah, that's, uh, that's why Eco Justice Stand earth and a few other orgs have been working with me, a few other clients to be putting in a competition bureau complaint against RMC. We're actually challenging RMC, making the case that their representations in the media are misleading to the public and they're you know attracting these customers. And for me personally, like I feel like in particular young people to bank with them, saying like, oh, if you bank with us, we're going to be doing all these great things for the environment. But that's not actually what they're doing. It's just a complete misrepresentation. So I think that's I think that's the most mind-blowing thing ever. It's the, the vast contrast and the really terrible irony in there.
2: Yeah, for sure. I I remember a couple of years ago, I was traveling through Europe, and this was like 10 years ago now, I guess, probably actually, but I remember seeing an HSBC ad which is, you know, one of Canada's big banks, but also at the time I think it had just been embroiled in a scandal where they had been, I think, like directly funding or hiding the fact that they were funding actual terrorism, like just completely, like they will take money from anyone and do anything. And then their ad campaign that I had saw like shortly thereafter was about how they were building a green future, and I was like, oh "You are not." It's truly amazing how our advertising standards allow for that in some ways. It's hard to figure out where the line is. Like if you say like we're giving a couple billion dollars to this climate change thing or a couple million dollars to this climate change thing, that's technically true. And so it's sort of hard to be like, that shouldn't be allowed. But there does feel like there should be a little of little scale there. Someone else should be like, yes, but also this. And so I I've, I appreciate it. And I'm glad that y'all are pushing back on some of that greenwashing because it's so important because most people don't have the time. Most people don't have the time to look into this. Into these other things they will just see what's projected to their face and i mean banks are sort of built in a way that will automatically make money and therefore they have huge huge advertising budgets to make sure that they can keep their images as squeaky clean as possible and so i do imagine that that y'all are probably scaring them a little bit in terms of how effectively you are getting into their you know, just reminding people to think about them as an institution. The larger that they are, the more they can sort of fade into the background, the easier it is for them to keep making money. And I, I was recently reading that overdraft charges weren't a thing until the 1990s. And now it's like, if you run out of money and you overdraw, they will charge you through the moon for how much money it is. And just another way they punish poor people and and it's that rich people will never have to deal with. And it's a thing that they made up in the 90s just to squeeze out extra money from people who are already hurting so much. And there are so many of these examples that we just accept as fine because that's just the way things are, which is totally extractive and it's totally extractive from the class of people who are have the least amount of money. It's in no way helpful and actively harmful for us. And yet Because it's the banks, because it's the financial sector, people, as you said, get intimidated and then just sort of back off instead of confronting them with the ways in which the ways they are creating a society that is less fair, that is less equitable and less reasonable to live in.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think that really gets into the core of the issue with the banking sector. It's that, you know, I talked a lot about climate crisis and how they're funding that, which they absolutely are. But they're also such a big player in so many other injustices we see in society, like every single one, I would argue. Like, seven you mentioned economic injustice and inequity, which is the hugest one, and it affects all other inequities. I'm thinking about how the banks, you know, contribute to our housing crisis that we're seeing today, especially in Toronto, with these terrible, terrible housing prices and they're, you know, so involved in extraction, not just in fossil fuels, but also the mining industry. And that's really affecting folks overseas. Diaspora groups, which there's so many in Toronto and their families, their loved ones, their homes are being targeted by the banks just for these critical minerals for any extraction. There's just a lot of things and a lot of facets there. And it's all very complicated, but somehow the banks are part of all of those inequities. and. That's why I hope that if we can organize against the banks, even though banking on a better future focuses on climate, hopefully we can, you know, join up with some others who are bad banks for many other reasons. Very, very valid. reasons too.
2: Yeah, I mean, again, I think you're right. They are such an institution that they are responsible in the same way that the government has responsibility for all of the injustices. Banks themselves have a similar sort of hands in their pockets. So, to switch to action, what kind of actions are banking on, is banking on a better future taking at the moment and in the upcoming few months?
1: So we actually just finished our TMX week of action. So this is a week of action against the TMX expansion project. This is a pipeline that's going through the nations of the Squamish, the uh, Tsleil-Waututh. It's being opposed by the Tiny House Warriors of the Sequoia Nation. And there's been a great deal of Just colonial violence, everywhere from, you know, surveillance, police brutality, just all of these things are being enabled by the Canadian government and the so-called BC government. It's gone so bad that the United Nations, their Committee Against Racial Discrimination, had actually sent a letter to the Canadian government calling out all the police brutality, the colonial violence, and the terrible things that are just being done to indigenous land defenders and just peaceful protesters because of the tmx pipeline so there was a lot of pressure the canadian government did pull their money out of that pipeline just for the banks to come in and be like okay if the canadian government's not going to fund it then we will so that was terrible news to hear so this week of action was basically calling out the big five canadian banks for funding the tmx pipeline and like specifically you know their recent announcement of taking over from the Canadian government on that funding. There were actions all across so-called Canada, organized by awesome supporters, allied groups, and awesome people in the Peking on Better Future community. So yeah, we did, there was like a lot of postering, a lot of stickering. I saw some amazing banners, like the ones out in Vancouver, so-called Vancouver, There was this awesome blockade in so-called Toronto, and so many other awesome actions. Everywhere else in between and beyond. So very, very happy that all these youth kind of got together, learned about the TMX pipeline, got informed, and decided to take collective action because this is action that the banks definitely couldn't miss since it was literally everywhere <laughs> in every pocket of Canada.
2: Awesome. That's great news. And so I'm gonna ask one a bit of a diversion to a personal question before we get back to this. So if folks want to know how to get involved, that's my question after this question. But first, there's an ongoing conversation I've been having with activists whenever someone comes on the show about climate anxiety and how they deal with it. Because to me, it's one of these things where everyone's got a different process, everyone has a different way. And so I don't think I can ask the question enough because everyone has a slightly different take on it in a way that might help someone else. And I'm sort of figuring that you might hear this six times, the first six times, you're like, oh, that idea doesn't help me. But the seventh time might be the time where you're like, "Ha, that process does seem like it might help. And so- do you personally feel climate anxiety? And if so, how do you manage it?
1: I am personally used to feel climate anxiety, and I'm very fortunate that I don't anymore. And the way that I kind of managed it was through, okay, one healthier mechanism and one not as healthy mechanism. The healthy one is through organizing and just being out on the street, being with people who all are so passionate about the same thing, who are all fighting towards the same cause and who, you know, I'm lucky enough to call friends now it's so empowering and it feels so great to know that I'm doing something and to not feel so stagnant. I think before I got into activism, the main cause of my anxiety was feeling like there's nothing I can do. But now I feel like there is something I can do and I'm doing it, which is wonderful. My unhealthy coping mechanism is just distracting myself through like whatever means I can. So like, you know, any podcast, any like random YouTube video rabbit holes, I can find myself falling into. That's what I do. I've recently been falling into this rabbit hole of watching YouTube videos about old abandoned amusement park and amusement park rides. And it's incredibly interesting, not a productive use of my day, but it's fine because because I'm distracting myself from the climate crisis.
2: I mean, that makes sense. That is also often advice I give to people who are trying to get through breakups. <laughs> just for a while, just distract yourself. Time will help, so for a bit of time, Just watch whatever you want, do whatever you want, let yourself totally turn your brain off and it will get you somewhere. So it's time that we break up with the climate crisis after you break up with your bank.
1: Exactly,
2: exactly. (laughs) So for folks who want to get involved and maybe take more decisive action with Banking on a Better Future, how can they do that?
1: Yeah, they can visit bankingonabetterfuture.org. There is a tab for take action. So exactly what you were saying and a lot of different options. So depending on where you're at, how much time you have, we get that not everyone has the same amount of time to put into activism, which is also totally valid and okay. So there's, like I said, things that are uh, as simple as, you know, some emails that you can send, some letters that you can write to the big five banks and their executives. But there's also some trainings that you can do, toolkits if you want to take different types of action. And I always recommend the best way to Keep updated on what we're doing and any calls to action uh, is by following our social media. So we're just at Think for a Better Future on Instagram and also on TikTok. And then I think we're at Think for Future on Twitter, if anyone's still on Twitter. So if you want to follow those, there's often calls to action, there's workshops that we'll do to train people up for those calls to action. And I find those as really empowering opportunities. You know, when there's a big day of action or a big week of action to the organizing event while others around the country are also taking action so yeah i'll see you on on tiktok or on twitter i guess
2: amazing well thank you so much chloe c the toronto a toronto organizer with banking on a better future really appreciate your time and all of your incredible work uh, that y'all are doing and it's our tradition to give our our guests, sort of the last word before we go to the end of show music. So do you have any last thoughts you want to share with our listeners?
1: Absolutely. I think my last thought is shout out to all the amazing, amazing land defenders who we learn from the Wet'suwet'en Nation, the Squamish, the slay the tiny house warriors. They're the reason that we have a climate justice movement and we'll keep fighting in solidarity with them.